You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. We spent like the past decade or two trying to get awareness that this was an emerging problem. That's Andy Bachman. He's a senior grid strategist for Idaho National Labs National and Homeland Security Directorate. Today, we're discussing the research the INL has been doing, developing new approaches to protecting mission-critical systems. At first, it was a nuisance-level problem, and it was treated accordingly. It didn't require vast amounts of spending or restructuring of organizations in order to be able to keep it at arm's length. And we were trying to, I'd say, wake up, uh, bring more awareness to seniors, telling them it's going to get worse probably, so be aware of that. Well, we weren't sure if they were aware. I would say fast forward till now, I spend a lot of time on the Hill and with companies and senior folks in companies. They're aware, they're awake, they're nervous. The problem is they don't know what to do. It seems like we keep doing more of the same on cyber hygiene or say cyber defense. We spend more every year on products. We spend more every year on services. We do more training. 
and improve our policies. And yet it's not changing anything. The number of attacks are increasing and they're getting more powerful and the damage they're inflicting is getting more severe. So today, the problem is not a nuisance level problem. It's a strategic business level risk and a strategic risk to the nation. The Idaho National Lab has come up with a way that I think is practical and relatively easy to understand to begin to mitigate it in a demonstrable way. Can you take us through some of the history of this? So we're talking about industrial control systems and critical infrastructure. How did we go from the previous era of analog feedback and gauges and so forth to where we are now with everything being digital? I think the drivers are primarily economic and they have to do with efficiency and new capabilities. The efficiency is obvious. If you can automate a process that used to require 100 human beings performing different types of maneuvers hands-on, and you can replace them with an automated system and maybe have just a handful of humans touching the process, guiding the process. Well, heck, you've just saved yourselves a ton of money. You might've spent something on the automation and keeping it running, but you've not only reduced your headcount and improved your bottom line, but you've probably speeded the process too and made it more standardized. Those are some of the additional capabilities besides efficiency and money saving that come along. You also may get situational awareness. You may be able to monitor much better using sensors than you ever were using human eyes and ears. And so you can be much more in tune with the processes that are most important to you and can run closer to the edge, thereby, again, being more efficient, saving more money, making more for less. I think that's been the siren call of digitization and automation. And I think it's only accelerating now with artificial intelligence, uh, Internet of Things, and all varieties of automation. Yeah, one of the things that your paper points out is uh, in the old days, you had these three physical pillars of security, gates, guards, and guns. That's right. Those, those, by the way, are still there, Dave. Uh, Gates, guards, and guns are present at every nuclear reactor site. And they're present on other important parts of electric utility and chemical and oil, natural gas. Certainly they're present. uh, They may not be quite as visible, but they're present in financial institutions too. Any place that has something really valuable to protect has to have strong physical security. And I think for decision makers, physical security is a lot easier to understand. You can see it. You can feel it in a way that cybersecurity has proven much more ephemeral, much more intangible, and only recently. I think that's what delayed the understanding of it and the increase in anxiety up until relatively recently, once they started to see the impacts. So describe to us, what are the impacts that now that we've hosed everything up to the internet, it seems like, I don't know, we've made that perimeter porous in a way. Yeah, I think uh, the lure of the internet, you know, we start off just with local area networks, right? You can go back to Clifford Stahl's The Cuckoo's Egg, which is, I think, considered to be the seminal book on cybersecurity, where the first nefarious actor on a very, very tiny network was doing misdeeds and still figuring out what was going on eventually. The internet was sort of a one-size-fits-all way for everyone to get connected. So first lands were connected to it, and now, you know, in many cases, uh, everyone's just directly connected to the internet, and devices are directly connected to the internet, as the search engine Shodan reveals. 
Now, you all make the point that uh, what is referred to today as cyber hygiene is inadequate to protect industrial control systems. Yeah, and this is a subtle point I want to make sure I get across, Dave. The article and the methodology from the Idaho National Lab, it's not a diatribe against cyber hygiene. We want people to continue to do cyber hygiene to the best of their ability. Again, cyber hygiene and the way I'm using it, and it is a somewhat loose term with different definitions. I mean, it has everything that we now do in a typical enterprise, whether it's technology, whether it's services, whether it's training, whether it's governance and policy, all of those things are cyber hygiene conforming to accepted best practices. We need to keep doing those things else every wanna cry and not petcha and all of their offspring that are constantly being born will cripple large companies or companies actually of any size. Ransomware too is something that's really increasing awareness of the link between cybersecurity and dollars and cents. Our point though is that among all the many different systems that you might protect in a medium or large size enterprise, you have endpoint security and you're just doing diligence all across your networks and systems with cyber hygiene. What we're saying is one of the mantras of INL is if you are targeted, you will be compromised. It's just a plain fact, and it's very easy to demonstrate. It's been happening over and over again. Well, maybe you might say, well, we're the type of company, uh, hopefully we won't be targeted. The problem is, is you don't get to choose if you're targeted or not. And I would say it's fairly clear that if you're anywhere near critical infrastructure in terms of what your responsibilities are, then you are a target. And back to the mantra, if you're targeted, you will be compromised. Therefore, that makes the, the whole narrative a lot more compelling to people that were sort of wishing and hoping that this problem would go away. One more part, the methodology isn't about the entire enterprise and your hundreds or thousands or millions of endpoints. It's about the, it's very selective. It's about the handful of processes or functions that you perform or products that you make that are so important that if you were to lose them for more than a day or two, be out of business. And that introduces a new term beyond strategic business risk. It's not a new term in the world, but it's new related to uh, cybersecurity, I think, for most people. Uh, it would be called corporate viability, that you are in many cases now in a position where through cyber means you could be put out of business. And you might not be put out of business, but as a CEO, and we've seen this multiple times now, you could lose your job because ultimately the buck stops with you. So take us through what you're proposing here. What are you suggesting? What we're trying to do again is to say, keep doing cyber hygiene, do it to the best of your ability. It will help keep the ankle biters that Mike Asante refers to in the HBR paper, help hold them at bay to the greatest extent possible. But for the handful of things, the systems and processes that absolutely must not fail, first of all, figure out what they are, because not everybody understands what their most important processes and dependencies are. So that's the first step of the methodology. The second step is create the map of the different hardware, software, communications, and human processes that support those processes that must not fail. And the third part is flipping the table around and looking at yourself from the outside as an adversary would. INL can help with this, but many organizations can already go a fair ways towards accomplishing this by sort of asking yourself in the first phase, if I was going to take my company out of business, if I was going to put us out of business, 
would be the most damaging thing I could do? What would I target? In the third phase of the methodology, we have cyber-informed people, people with uh, experience and being on the offensive side, navigate through the landscape that was defined in the second phase, all of the hardware, software, comms, and processes that support the most important things that must not fail, and find the easiest pathways to achieve the effects that they want, the company ending effects. The last part is called mitigations and tripwires. That simply means, and this is probably the part that I think uh, people latch on to for better or for ill, because we're saying when you see now that some of your most important systems and processes are at uh, extreme risk because of the numerous digital pathways in that are extremely hard to police, we're talking about selectively introducing out-of-band solutions, analog solutions. Uh, humans are analog, so adding a trusted human where you might have removed that person years ago because he can't be, <laughs> people will take issue with this, but in theory, he or she can't be hacked. Of course, they can be social engineered. But if you understand what I'm saying, not simply just layering on more complex software defense solutions and hoping for the best, things that you can't even understand, but rather adding engineered solutions that you can fully understand will protect a machine, say, from killing itself if it's given the instructions via software to do so. It strikes me, you know, one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading through the report was there was a phrase here that said, um, but if your own employees physically update the software at those plants, the effort can be prohibitively expensive. And I wonder if chasing after cost savings, has that ultimately been a blind alley? If we can't trust the data that's being sent back to us from a remote location or, or something like that, were we chasing after something we shouldn't have been chasing? It seems to me that if something goes wrong, we're going to have to send a human out there anyway to see what's really going on. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big features that purveyors of industrial systems and industrial equipment that they tout is that it's remotely accessible, that you can do remote diagnostics and remote updates. It's sort of a blessing and a curse. If in the situation where you need to issue a security patch because you found a high severity vulnerability, the ability to deploy that patch to hundreds or thousands of systems quickly from one central location is fantastic. It's really necessary these days. The downside of that convenience, I don't think I've used the word convenience yet, but that's <laughs> certainly a big player here and it's related to efficiency. The downside is that if trusted folks inside your company have that capability, then armed with the proper credentials and adversaries are getting better and better at acquiring credentials so they don't even look like uh, hackers on your systems they can do the same thing and if they can do the same thing now you're in uh, you're in peril so it's got balance between the convenience in order to have efficiency in some cases that's important for cybersecurity to be able to issue patches but convenience for other reasons too to save money to speed up other functions for competitive reasons many times over People are taking on risks they don't understand. I guess that's one way to sort of summarize this topic is we don't think that senior leaders, we don't think people in government fully understand the risk that they're carrying. We're not trying to scare them, just trying to show them reality. And once they come to understand that as the CEO of the first pilot that we did with a large utility and the second pilot that's going on with the Department of Defense right now, once they understand their exposure and how their company or their mission is at risk, then they can go ahead and make informed engineering decisions to how they want to mitigate that risk. 
In some cases, we think they can reduce it. I shouldn't say to zero, but they can greatly reduce it from where they are now and be able to continue modernizing while they're still reducing their risk. Now, take us through what's going on with those pilot programs. What are you learning from that? How are your your theories standing up to practice in the real world? Uh, So far, so good. There's definitely a cognitive leap that has to be made when we're introducing the concept that you may be doing a great job on cyber hygiene. You may have a very competent chief security officer. You may have good policies and you may have a budget that's equal to or superior to your peer organizations. And the problem with the, the neck is the pivot is the hard part because back to the mantra I cited earlier, if you're targeted, you will be compromised. And that statement stands independent of how robust your cyber hygiene is. So you can imagine the CEO who's been told for many quarters or years, we are very strong on cybersecurity. We go to conferences and we learn that we are among the best. And that's good. I'm I'm not poo-pooing that at all. It's just the pivot is if they're in critical infrastructure, they're a target. And if they're targeted, they will be compromised. And if they know that that's once they come to accept that, and it doesn't always happen in the first couple minutes, takes a little while and sometimes some demonstrations. But once they come to understand that, they become very eager to figure out what they can do about it. Like I said, and the solutions here are not all that mysterious. They are solutions that I would say CEOs and other seniors, even people that aren't real comfortable in the computer realm, they can understand uh, in industrial companies anyway, engineering solutions because they make so much sense. And it's actually their own engineers sometimes that come up with the best mitigations. In the case of the pilot, even before the INL folks could lead them to a solution, they were already way out ahead thinking of ways to better protect a, a very important piece of equipment. And what sort of feedback are you getting from other folks in the ICS community? Has there been much pushback or are folks embracing it? I'd say um, two-thirds positive, one-third either confused or negative. The two-thirds positive are chiming in on Twitter and elsewhere with, this is very similar to what I've been advocating for a long time. And it's true. There are a number of people that have been thinking about leveraging the core acumen of these large critical infrastructure companies, which is engineering, by the way, leveraging in ways that would reduce their cyber risk. It's just it hasn't been an easy sell, I don't think. And maybe no one's really tried to package it up before in a way that is deliverable. We're at the edge of that now with uh, several pilots either done or underway and beginning to get closer to something that's more repeatable and scalable. So I'd say it's mainly been positive, Dave, but there are going to be people who, for perhaps religious reasons, like I mentioned when, uh, when I got academic pushback just on the word analog, they can't even listen beyond that, then that's fine. That may be appropriate in their world. But when you're out there in the field, hands on these systems, and they're vital to the survival of a company or to the performance of a mission in the military, don't really have the luxury of intellectual purism. Got to find things that work. I think in this case, this consequence-driven, cyber-informed methodology, so far at least, and I think it'll continue, is proving itself to be something that works. The methodology, the CCE methodology, it might look at first blush like it's about a one-time assessment that will lead to improvements, security improvements in an organization. But that's actually not the ultimate intent of it. It's not why INL created it and why it's being birthed now. What we're really trying to do is use it almost as 
on-the-job training, and that by going hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm with the end-user customer, both with their senior leaders and with their engineers and with their cyber teams, we're trying to change the way they think about this up-until-now intractable, overwhelming problem. And so we're not so much trying to leave them with a one-time set of updated improvements to their security, we're trying to change their minds. And so that when we do leave and have made some of the mitigations together, left them to continue some of them on their own, that that new type of thinking fully informs everything they do from that point on. And they don't need any outsider to hold their hand anymore. And the thinking permeates not just the C-suite and the board, and not just the engineers and operators and the cyber team, but the procurement folks and the HR folks. And everybody comes to see that they have a role in substantially reducing the amount of risk that they're carrying now. Again, you probably have captured this already, but if they're a critical infrastructure provider, they're a target. They don't get to choose that. And if they are targeted, they will be compromised. And if they accept that, they can help them come to see that, they'll increasingly understand that now that there are a handful of fairly straightforward things, things that also don't necessarily have to be very expensive at all, they can do to substantially improve their standing. Our thanks to Andrew Bachman from Idaho National Labs for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about the work they're doing, there's an article he recently published in the Harvard Business Review. That was the May 15th edition of the review. The title of the article is Internet Insecurity. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. 
it means the universe to us. 